This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Oh, and it is a hot one today. So as you've been hearing all morning long, uh, our Revelstoke RCMP sent out a press release. So if you're wondering where this information came from, it came from them. They're the ones who sent this out. And they talked about how they raided a house in the community of Revelstoke because three cannabis plants were growing in the backyard. Those plants were spotted by an off-duty officer during the town's art and garden tour. Their press release calls this a blatant violation, it says, of the Cannabis Control and Licensing Act. That act says that you can't grow cannabis in view of the general public. Uh, Now, rather than just, you know, take the person, the homeowner aside and say... You probably didn't realize this with the public coming through, but I can kind of see those plants there. So you might want to remove them, cover them up, or next time, don't volunteer your house for the art and garden tour, whatever the case, right? No, no. They came back with a search warrant and a bunch of officers, and they raided the home, took the plants, and some. they said some other things away. So we're asking you today, what do you think? of Revelstoke RCMP's actions. Do you call this a blatant overreach? Or do you say, no, they're just doing their job. They are following the law. Well, you know what? It's been very active, this question, because we put it up about 20 minutes ago. You can find it if you're online at simisarah980 or at cknw. You can also email me, simi at cknw.com, or call our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, 331-2899. Gotten almost 150 votes already on this thing. 78% of people are saying this is blatant overreach. 22% say this is police doing their job. The thing is, like, policing in small communities is different than policing in the big city right? In the small community, you would think everybody knows everybody and you'd want to build some ties with people. uh, And why wouldn't you then just take this person aside and say, this isn't the best way to do this. Now I'm going to give you a couple days to fix this. And if I come back and it's still the case, well, then we're going to have to talk about, you know, what, what we do here. Instead, just showing up and, you know, with a heavy hand and doing this, not sitting well with a lot of people out there. So weigh in with your thoughts. What do you think of their actions? Is it overreach or are they just doing their job? We're going to talk more about this because many people have cannabis plants that are growing in their yard, right? It's legal to grow up to four plants. So imagine you're hosting a garden tour in your yard and then you later find out, oh, your home was raided by police. Why? How did that happen? Because of something that they saw in your yard when it was open to the public. So this is what happened to a Revelstoke couple. This is the story in the news that we have been talking about. Anna Minton and her husband participated in Revelstoke's annual Community Garden and Art Tour. This was on July the 28th. And they had about 70 people come over, tour their yard, admiring the flowers, the local art. Now, Anna Minton says that the three cannabis plants weren't particularly out in the open, so she's not sure uh, like who reported them to the RCMP. It turns out it was actually an RCMP officer off-duty who was going on this community art tour. At least that's what their press release said. Have a listen to Anna Minton. Well, they were quite tucked in the back, and actually a lot of people, I don't think, even saw them or knew they were there. There was, as my husband said, one kind of grumpy guy there that, you know, we were introducing ourselves and, you know, asking if people had any questions about anything. And he, yeah, so that, you know, we don't, we don't know, but it was, um, it was, I, I reached out to the other Art and Garden Corps members and they, they said that they, they identified Officer Ferenling as being present at the Art and Garden Tour. All right. And Constable Ferenling is that officer that Anna Minton just mentioned there on the garden tour, the same officer who filed for the search warrant application that was then authorized by a judge. At the time, though, 
Anna Minton had no idea this was going on, that anyone was seeking a warrant to search her home. She didn't find out until she and her husband came home from dinner last Friday night. We walked home until all the lights were left on and my dog was tied up, which we didn't have tied up because there was a cougar in the neighborhood. And um, yeah, our tenants were like, are you guys okay? And we're like, yeah, why? You know, like didn't really think anything of it. And then, yeah, when we got inside the house, there was the search warrant sitting on a stool. It was a disgusting feeling. It was a horrible feeling. I felt incredibly violated. And uh, it's been a few, few sleepless nights since. Right. And if you're wondering how everybody knows about this, it's because RCMP and Revelstoke sent out a press release on this. That's why everybody found out about it. Now, the warrant was issued because it says that Anna and her husband appeared to be in violation of a rule in the Cannabis Control and Licensing Act of BC, Section 56 g that states you cannot grow your plants in a place where they are visible to the public. Specifically, it says, an adult must not grow a cannabis plant that is not medical cannabis at a dwelling house unless the following requirements are met. G, that the cannabis plant is not visible from a place described in paragraph A of the definition of public place by an individual unaided by any device other than a device to correct vision. Uh, I guess it's your definition of public place. This was a private backyard. It was only open on that day for the Art and Garden Tour. Uh, but this has prompted a lot of discussion for people who go, well, wait a minute, do I have to be afraid of some of the plants that I've got in my backyard? If I have a barbecue, you invite people over, you know, like what happens then? So we thought we'd talk about this a little bit more now with the help of Paul Doroshenko from Acumen Law. Paul, thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. What did you think when you heard this story? I thought it was absurd. I thought uh, I couldn't believe it. I mean, first of all, these are people who paid uh, uh, to attend the person's house, so it's not a public viewing. It's invitees only. Uh, but, you know, what, what are the police doing here? I mean, this piece of legislation is, uh, is less than a year old. Why are they not just knocking on the door and telling people, you know what, you've you got to make sure that these cannabis plants can't be seen? Um, you know, I, I don't think that there's, uh, there's grounds for, I, I mean, I'm surprised the warrant was issued on this basis. Um, I don't think that there's uh, grounds to conclude that this is, like, visible to the public. Uh, but, uh, you know, what are they doing? Like, it's just a gross overreach. This is not, you know, I don't think the intention of the legislation, I don't think it was the intention of the government, and I don't think people in British Columbia would be supportive of this. Now, does it then come down to, do you think, legally, that definition of public place? This, was, this wasn't an event, as you point out, that anybody could have just walked into. No, I mean, it's not. The, 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 the visibility, the intention of this legislation is that you don't have it in the front window of your, of your house, uh, that you don't have it so people can just look in your house and see that you've got cannabis plants there. And I suppose the purpose of that is to try and discourage people from, uh, uh, to, to discourage potential break and enters or something along that right. line. Uh, but here we've got a tour where people have paid a ticket, uh, paid a, a fee and got a ticket to go into the house uh, and to be, you know, in there. And it's no different than you inviting, you know, some family members over or your friends over to your house. This is not, uh, you know, viewable by the public. This is still in your private, you know, on your private property, in your private house. And it's only people who are, are specifically invited in mm-hmm. uh, that are getting to view it. So, I mean, I, I'm just... Uh, you, you want to think that the uh, that police officers are balanced and rational, uh, and uh, you know they, they we always are sort of are told that we can do it to trust the police to apply the law fairly, uh, and then you see things like this, and it's, it's really very discouraging. Now you raise a good point there, though. So what if 
then somebody has a large barbecue, large event, and they invite lots of friends and their friends bring their spouses that maybe you've never met before. Is that a public event then? If one, I don't of, think if so. one of those spouses is an off-duty police officer, is that you a know, public event? Not by my reading of the legislation, uh, because it's you know viewed from a public place, basically. Um, and this is not a public place. So I don't see how that is a public event. I don't see how that you could get to that interpretation. But again, this is the police go. They you know give uh, information to obtain to apply for a warrant. The warrant presumably is under the provincial legislation uh, because the public viewing aspect is not part of the federal legislation. Uh, and uh, persuade a, a judge that the warrant should be issued doesn't mean that the offense is made out, right? You know, they still yeah. have to go to court and establish that the offense was made out. So, you know, I don't, uh, I, I think, I guess we're going to see a lot of uh, litigation coming down the road in what is going to be defined as public uh, public place and, you know, what, what can be seen. Uh, it seems sort of ridiculous to me that this is the direction they're going. You know, I, I know Mike Farnworth, um, you know, seemed to suggest that these provincial uh, uh, cannabis police that they're establishing would not be applying it in this way. Uh, this is the RCMP applying it yeah. in this way, and it, uh, it's, it's a little upsetting. Do you think this is going to proceed, or you talked a lot about technicalities there. Like, how far do you think this is going to get? I would be greatly surprised if it leads to a charge uh, and if it ends up going to court. Again, there's the, you know, there are administrative sanctions under the provincial legislation that can be, that can be uh, forwarded administratively, and then you can dispute it. There's dispute provisions for it. Uh, eventually, these things, if people don't like the decision that's rendered by the tribunal or think that the tribunal has, uh, has made an error in law, they can appeal it to B.C. Supreme Court. Then a B.C. Supreme Court judge has to have a hearing on it. It's not a new hearing. It's a hearing as to whether or not the, uh, the adjudicator at the tribunal level made an error. Where Ultimately, these things are going to make their way to court. Right. But we should be clear here, Paul. There is a law, right? You cannot plant these plants in your front yard. No, of course not. You can't have them in your front window. You can't have them in your front yard. You can't have them in a spot that if the public is standing or can, you know, look, uh, can see them. And it's not an issue. I mean, even, you, you know, seeing them with binoculars is probably also uh, still an offense. I mean, if they can be seen with some sort of uh, uh, way to, uh, in, you know, it, increase your ability to spot them, it's not an issue necessarily of distance. You're supposed to have them hidden. But, uh, in circumstances where the only reason that the person's able to see them is because they were uh, invited into the house, particularly in a circumstance where there's a ticket purchased first, yeah. um, you know that's getting far, uh, very distant from the original intention of this legislation, in my view. What would your advice then be to people who are perhaps growing the legal number, which is I think four is the legal number, of plants in their backyard? Well, the backyard is, is always a problem because if somebody can see it, you're at risk right? Um, you know, do your best to make sure that you are uh, ensuring that people can't see it from a, from a public place. Fence it off so you can't see through the fence. Uh, go one step beyond what you think the, uh, the limits are set out in the legislation. Um, you know, that's usually the wisest course of action, but you know, then again, you look at these people and they appear to have been um, very diligent with it. And here we are there, you know, had a warrant executed of their uh, on their properties. So. Right. But some people might think like, OK, if this is if this is going to be happening, then should they be worried? I'd be worried. 
I mean, if I had four plants in my house after seeing this, I'd be worried. Uh, You know, is somebody going to uh, come to your house as a visitor, mention it to an RCMP officer, and then the RCMP officer is going to go get a warrant just because somebody who was visiting your house saw it? Uh, I don't think a person visiting your house is a member of the public for that purpose, but, you know, we've got to wait until there's some... Uh, further clarity, either uh, either the government changes the legislation and to to answer that question uh, fully, or we or get a decision from a court. Yeah. So uh, this, do you think then we need this kind of case to proceed so we can get that kind of clarity? You know, I don't think this case should have got as far as it has right now. I don't think that the, that lack of clarity is necessary with this set of facts. Um, I don't think this is a, a situation that uh, is probably going to proceed. I'd be surprised if it does. Um, do we need uh, greater clarity? Can we get that greater clarity? Uh, you know, when the government writes legislation, they always do their best to try and head off all of these things, to try and answer all these questions, and then they always seem surprised when um, when the actual circumstances on the yeah. ground uh, come before them. Uh, you know, I- I'm hoping that we see a rational application of the law and that uh, whoever makes the decision on approving uh, the process from this point forward will look at it and say, you know what, police officers, you guys shouldn't have got a warrant. You shouldn't have gone in there. Uh, what you should have done, if anything, is knocked on the door yeah. at this point in the legislation and said, hey, you guys, just make sure those plants aren't visible. Next uh, time you host you know, a garden tour. Exactly. Yeah. I agree on that one completely. Paul, thanks very much for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. That's Paul Doroshenko with Acumen Law talking about this case from Revelstoke, and I I really actually could not agree more. Hey, have you heard of the term junk science? It's a bigger problem that you might realize. It's when you have those unproven therapies that get touted as, oh, health changing. It's going to be amazing for you, and people fall for it. A new study says that we in Canada are not doing a good enough job in combating this problem. This study cites the example of stem cell therapies. Now, you've probably heard of these, right? Celebrities are out there on social media saying, oh, it made them feel so much better. It improved their arthritis. Or there's athletes who say it helped them recover from an injury. There are clinics all over North America and here in Canada that are charging people a lot of money to come in and get some kind of stem cell therapy. It's untested. It is unproven, and yet people are paying big money for it. They're paying a lot of money for it. Now, our next guest co-wrote the paper that looked at this issue. It's called Regulatory and Policy Tools to Address Unproven Stem Cell Interventions in Canada, the Need for Action. That's a long name for a very simple problem. Canadians are getting taken advantage of, and the government is not cracking down on it. Blake Murdoch is the research associate at the University of Alberta's Health Law Institute and joins us now with more. Well, Blake, thanks for joining us to talk about this today. First of all, tell me about your paper. What is it that you looked at? Sure. Well, what we did was we uh, reviewed um, the status of regulation in Canada as well as, uh, you know, case law, et cetera, and looked for policy tools that could potentially uh, help uh, take action against these uh, unproven stem cell therapies. We kind of identified, uh, you know, three regulatory bodies uh, that would be important, uh, Health Canada, the Competition Bureau, and professional regulators. Um, you know, which is, these, these things are sort of known, but we, we wanted to also uh, look at how we could be more practical, perhaps, than some of the past literature on the topic. So, Right. What, what is the problem with some of these promoted stem cell therapies? Well, one of the problems, of course, is that um, they're unproven, which is why I say unproven stem cell therapies. So, um, you know, you have, uh, you know, in the past, like a decade ago or so, we had a lot of uh, stem cell tourism, which is where 
uh, you know, citizens were perhaps going to other countries to get these unproven uh, treatments, and now and now we're seeing it starting to spread in Canada. Actually, primarily offered by some medical doctors more so than alternative uh, alternative practitioners. But um, you know, they haven't gone through a clinical trial process. They haven't uh, gone through the hoops where you need to prove that things are safe and effective. And so, um, you know, very unlikely also that some of them work as there's some indication that they may not necessarily use stem cells or, uh, you know, do exactly what they're claiming to do as well in some cases. Yeah, what are they claiming to be? Like, why would people want to have these therapies? Sure. Well, uh, in relation to that, I mean, a lot of uh, people suffer, as you may know, from uh, chronic pain and other things like mm-hmm. that. So, uh, you know, in past studies, it's been identified that uh, chronic joint pain, muscle pain, uh, concerns like that have been the dominant offerings. But there's been all, all sorts of uh, different, uh, you know, proposed uh, treatments in terms of uh, for, for other problems as well, including, you know, things like uh, ALS or even I've seen Alzheimer's in the United States. So there's all sorts of broad claims being made and and not necessarily with any uh, good evidence scientifically to back it up. Right. So people are desperate. They want help. Somebody makes a claim, they fall for it, and they're going to try it. That's right. Yeah, it's something we see definitely with other forms of uh, alternative therapies as well. Of course, these ones potentially have uh, greater risks than some of the other alternative therapies. I guess part of the problem here as well, Blake, is that it, it sounds kind of sciencey, right? People think, well, it must be legit. They're talking about stem cells. Like you could, they can almost surround it in the right kind of lingo and language to make it sound like it's very related to science. Right. And that's kind of a term that at our uh, institute, the Health Institute, we've kind of called science exploitation, where you kind of take the language of uh, good science and then use it uh, for something that's unproven uh, to potentially sort of uh, mislead people. And, of course, it should be noted that there is a ton of very important stem cell research still going on, uh, you know, uh, throughout the world. But um, if you look at the institutes that, uh, you know, the research institutes internationally, they note that there's only, uh, you know, three or four therapies that are uh, truly uh, proven and ready for the clinic right now. But hopefully we'll have many more uh, real ones in the future. Right. So your study looked at then what governments are doing to prevent some of this junk science from getting out there. And so you found that Canada isn't doing as good of a job as, say, what, the United States? Right. So there have been actions uh, in the United States taken. So, uh, you know, the FDA, for example, uh, has warned clinics uh, and, you know, sought permanent injunctions against specific clinics to stop them from providing some of these therapies. And, uh, you know, the, the, the U.S. federal justice has also um, uh, taken some action. Uh, and then the Federal Trade Commission as well for misleading advertising. So if we look at the kind of corollaries in terms of Canadian institutions, uh, you know, until recently there had been very little action from uh, Health Canada or the Competition Bureau. Uh, and still no action from the Competition Bureau, actually, but Luckily, we've been happy to see that the the Health Canada has uh, published uh, recently a position paper where they're stating uh, that these therapies are drugs uh, under the definition of the legislation, and and therefore they're not supposed to be offered without Health Canada approval. Right, but is Health Canada actually getting involved? Right, so this is hopefully the start of uh, where we're going to see some action. Um, You know, there's not a ton of evidence of that yet, but the next step 
is definitely to see Health Canada going after these clinics and shutting them down uh, or, or, you know, at least stopping them from providing these therapies. And so we'll have to see if, if that uh, unfolds. Uh, we're hopeful for sure. Yeah, what happens in the States then? Are, are they shutting these clinics down? Yeah, so uh, the States has uh, hundreds of these clinics. So in Canada, we've got about 40, a little bit over 40, uh, according to a 2018 study. So there's hundreds of them in the U.S., so it's, it's taking time, uh, but they, they are taking action to shut some of them down. Now, some of, some of the different states are taking different actions, depending on the state as well, so that kind of gets complicated, but... Yeah. Right. What should people look for, though, Blake? Like, if they hear this or they think, "Yeah, I'm not gonna, I don't want to fall for this," are there questions that they should ask? Are there places they should go on the internet to find out more information? Certainly, uh, if you see a private clinic offering a stem cell therapy, uh, you know, really the only stem cell therapy you could. Uh, or one of the only stem cell therapies you could potentially receive legitimately in Canada that's a proven approved therapy is is for leukemia. So you know these these therapies, anything related to joint pain, et cetera, if it's mentioning stem cell therapy, that's a huge huge red flag. Right. So don't. It, it may sound like it's the be all end all, but we are not there yet. Yeah, and and there are risks to this, right? So. You know, it's something that we need more research on because um, these are, you know, private clinics, so they're not necessarily reporting uh, problems or whatever. But in, in the literature and in, in some of the media reports, we've seen cases. I mean, you can imagine stem cells are, by their nature, able to turn into different types of cells, right? Uh, of cells, right? So if you have a, a cell, uh, a stem cell, and you inject it into a joint, um, you know, there's no mechanism necessarily to understand or know what that what kind of cell that could turn into. So, you know, what if you inject stem cell into your joint and then it turns to bone, uh, you know, you're going to have a problem, right? Yeah. And there have been some cases of, of these stem cells uh, turning into a different kind of tissue than was hoped for. So, Oh, my, that sounds bizarre. It doesn't help, I guess, does it, Blake, that you've got all these celebrities out there talking about how, oh, this stem cell therapy changed their life. Uh, no, and celebrity uh, is something we constantly come up against, uh, you know, when you look at the power of social media and uh, government institutions really have no reach compared to celebrities online. So um, that's an ongoing issue, and uh, we saw that in Canada as well with Gordie Howe, uh, you know, um, back when he was uh, still still alive here. He, he had that uh, therapy, and it was in the news, and so that, that's been not helpful, um, but you know, something that is definitely a constant issue in, in the context of uh, health information. Right. But in the meantime, a lot of people are making money off of this, aren't they? Certainly, yeah. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a multi-billion dollar industry, and that's one of the reasons it's going to be difficult to uh, shut down. And, uh, you know, we got to keep working on that. Now, the other thing is we've got a lot of misleading claims, uh, as you can imagine. So we're hoping that the Competition Bureau... Uh, you know, uh, might be starting to monitor these claims and start going after as well uh, on their side of things, uh, these sort of claims that can't be defended. Right. So you're hoping that the government will finally wake up and say, okay, we're going to have to do something here. Yeah, absolutely. And these are, of course, different different bureaucratic bodies, but uh, we, we hope that uh, they all sort of start acting in concert. And then on top of that, we are hoping that uh, professional regulators, so the colleges of physicians and surgeons, uh, will you know go to their members, so the the doctors in the different provinces, and tell them that they can't offer this 
because you know it's been pretty clear now, uh, clearly stated by Health Canada that uh, it's not allowed. So, all right, Blake, thank you so much for talking to us about it. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. That's Blake Murdoch. He's a research associate at the University of Alberta's Health Law Institute. He co-authored this paper that says the government really needs to come down harder on these clinics and places that are providing stem cell therapies that are unproven and unfounded. He says it's junk science. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. It's been a fairly good summer when it comes to wildfires. We haven't seen the problems that we've had in, in the last couple of years, but that could be about to change. Really hot temperatures uh, right now for much of the southern part of the province and that has led to the eagle bluff wildfire which is continuing to spread it has reportedly also tripled in size to get more on this we're joined now by shelby tom our global news okanagan reporter hi shelby hi simmy how you doing i'm good thank you so how big has this fire become yeah so this fire has actually quadrupled in size since monday it's now being mapped at 900 hectares it exploded in size overnight uh, really acting up and grew upslope and downslope. We're standing just north of Oliver near the uh, Suyus Indian Band Reserve, and you can see that the fire uh, crept all the way down to the bottom of the hillside. You can see the orange flames burning across the forest floor and thick, heavy smoke. Uh, this smoke is prompting an air quality advisory issued by Environment Canada. It is wafting across the South Okanagan. I live in Penticton. I could see the smoke as far as Penticton. It is thick and heavy, so those with uh, health conditions, uh, children, women who are pregnant and the elderly are advised to limit their outdoor smoke exposure. You can hear the helicopter just roaring over my head right now. They have been bucketing this blaze, you know, 12 hours a day for the past three days. They're scooping up from nearby Okanagan River, uh, dumping buckets of water on this fire. We've also seen the water skimmers overhead. They're skimming from Basso Lake and uh, strategically dropping water on this fire, as well as air tankers dropping retardants. So the BC Wildfire Service really throwing everything it has at this out-of-control fire right now. Okay, and so there are some concerns, though, right, about, like, so the Okanagan Correctional Centre? What's going on there? That's right. So I'm also standing beside the Okanagan Correctional Centre, which is the new provincial jail uh, that just opened near Oliver. Uh, the fire is burning in the hills around this facility. We are being told it is burning upslope, not downslope, but the local prison is under an evacuation alert. We spoke with BC Corrections that says it is housing 200 inmates at this facility, and they are preparing to evacuate inmates should conditions change. We saw about five shuttle buses on standby in the parking lot. They won't give us uh, many more details than that, citing privacy, but obviously those preparations are in place for what would likely be a complex operation if they did have to uh, evacuate this prison. Yeah, that sounds like a very big operation. Uh, Have you heard from the Ministry of Public Safety about that? Yeah, so the Ministry of Public Safety, BC Corrections, has only said that they do have the capacity that the Sheriff's Transportation Service has the capacity to transport inmates to other facilities if need be, but they won't give us uh, much more information than that. They said the risk of an evacuation is still low at this point. Uh, We're standing out here. We haven't seen any evacuations uh, taking place this morning, but obviously those preparations are underway with the fire uh, burning in the hills right around this facility. Right. Now, is this, you know, Shelby, we were talking about how, like, up until now, it's been a fairly easygoing summer. Has that been the case in the Okanagan as well? It has. It has been fairly uh, cool and calm throughout July. We didn't really see fire activity pick up until early August, but the BC Wildfire Service will tell you that August is their peak 
fire season. We always have uh, wildfires in the Okanagan during the summertime, and normally August is the peak of the season. So we were anticipating uh, some sort of fire activity throughout August. Uh, the BC Wildfire Service does believe this is suspected to be human caused. So as those temperatures increase, we're seeing temperatures into the mid-30s with low relative humidity. It is extremely hot and tinder dry. So if you're heading out to the backcountry in the Okanagan this week or this weekend, you're asked to take extra precautions. Yeah, it sounds like it's going to be very hot there. So what are they watching for in the next 24 hours or so? In the next 24 hours, they are sending in uh, 100 firefighters. They've also got uh, eight helicopters in the air. They're obviously paying a close attention to the weather. They do anticipate those hot and dry conditions to continue throughout the week, there may be a little bit of reprieve in the forecast come this weekend. There is some rain in the forecast, uh, but it doesn't seem like the weather is going to uh, really assist with this firefight at all in the immediate future. And then they're also dealing with really steep, rocky terrain. There are many uh, inoperable areas that they can't get their firefighters to on the ground. They can't get in those heavy pieces of equipment to build those fire guards. So they have been relying on the aerial assault for the last couple of days. Uh, While it may be unnerving to see that fire burn right down to the bottom of the hillside, the wildfire service says that is actually good news for crews because they can actually access that site Uh, They're planning to do a controlled ignition this afternoon around around 1 o'clock. So if you see extra smoke in the air this afternoon, that is going to be a planned ignition. They essentially try to create what they call a black line between the fire's perimeter and the community. So it burns up any fuel. If the fire were to reach that black line, they could use their fire suppression techniques and hold that fire back so it doesn't reach the community. So lots of uh, plans in place. Uh, to save the communities out here. But it is important to know this is burning in the hills. It is not impacting the communities of Oliver, Asoyuz, Okanagan Falls, other than a little bit of smoke. This is burning outside of town. So tourism operators are wanting to get the message out there that they are still open for business. You can still come to the wineries. You can still come uh, to the hotels and, and enjoy your stay on the lake. It is not impacting operations in the populated areas at this point other than a little bit of smoke. That is a great point. Shelby, thank you so much for the update. Thank you. That is Shelby Tom, our Global News Okanagan reporter, keeping an eye on the Eagle Bluff wildfire. You know, it was this time yesterday we were talking about uh, getting an update from Manitoba RCMP. They were looking for surveillance footage from fast food restaurants in Moose Jaw, Ontario Provincial Police. We're still investigating. All that came to an end uh, very quickly, about 40 minutes ago or so, and Manitoba RCMP held a press conference to say they believe they have found the bodies of Barish Migelski and Cam McLeod. Let's talk now with Diana Foxall, who's a global news reporter. She was at that press conference and joins us now. Hi, Diana. Hello. So that was quite a development. When did you first start getting indications that there was this kind of breakthrough? We started hearing a little bit earlier this afternoon that there were two bodies discovered up in the Gillum area, but we didn't get confirmation that it was indeed these two suspects who were wanted until that RCMP press conference at 2 o'clock local time, uh, noon your time. So police are now saying that they believe these bodies, of course, are Briar Schmigelski and Cam McLeod. They need to confirm those identities. They need to confirm uh, the cause of death. So they are going to be doing autopsies. They're flying the bodies back to Winnipeg later today. Uh, so we will get confirmation hopefully soon. But right now, RCMP are saying the search is over. Right. So I I was listening to the press conference, but did you hear, like, did they talk about, had this area been previously known to them? Had they searched it before or like, had they just overlooked it or what happened? 
That is a good question. I don't have the concrete answer for you, but they said these two bodies were found in an area of very, very dense brush. Uh, certainly, this was around the area they were searching. As we heard earlier, the officers had searched about 11,000 square kilometers of wilderness in the Gillum area as of sort of late last week. So I can imagine they would have searched around this mm-hmm. area, but it wasn't kind of until Friday that they found items linked to the suspects on the shoreline of the Nelson River and kind of redoubled their efforts in that area. And then at about 10 o'clock this morning, that's when they found the two bodies of the men about a kilometer away from the shoreline and again, eight or so kilometers away from where the burnt-out Toyota RAV4 was found uh, more than two weeks ago now. Yeah, so that clearly Friday was very significant and there was a big note, you could really tell, right, that things the intensity kind of changed at that point. Had had they withdrawn a lot of resources? Like, had it been much quieter in the days leading up to that? It certainly did feel like that. They announced that they were kind of reducing their efforts up in Gillum. But then again, late last week, they had this massive break. They brought in the specialized underwater units. Uh, those units were kind of sent home yesterday, or excuse me, Monday, I believe, Um but it was the officers on the ground who were able to find those bodies earlier this morning. Right. And how dense a brush are we talking about here? Did they give us an idea of that, Diana? Yes, they did say that this is very, very tough territory, not the type they not the type of area that you're kind of going to be able to just get around with, get around in easily. Like it's not typical hiking area. Um, this is somewhere that would have been very, very hard to search initially. And certainly it sounds like it was hard to eventually find these bodies uh, earlier this morning. Do they have, did they give any indication about how long those bodies might've been there? How long they, it had been since they had passed away? No, that is definitely one of the remaining questions that we're hoping to have addressed as soon as the autopsy is conducted. Uh, Assistant Commissioner Jane McClatchy was pretty tight-lipped on how long they may have been dead, any kind of cause of death. Um, we're also not told what the items that kind of tipped police off yeah. to a better location were. So hopefully we'll be finding more out more about that over the coming days. But uh, so far, we're just being told that it was some kind of items that tipped them off to the presence of these two suspects. And they were found about a kilometer away. So uh, that definitely narrowed the search right. down. Any indications then of how long then this autopsy or will take or when the next update might come? I don't have a good answer for you on that um hopefully i would say in the next few days they will i would imagine they would be able to confirm the identities a bit sooner perhaps than cause of death but hopefully uh it would be nice to get something by tomorrow but i think we'll have to stay posted on that all right we'll be talking to you again diana thank you you're welcome thank you that is diana fox all global news reporter she was at that press conference held by manitoba rcmp within the last hour so as you heard her point out there are still some questions here on this, right? Uh, how long had these two bodies been there for? How long had they been deceased? Were they still moving around while the search was going on? Uh, still, And what did they die of? Like so many questions still about this, but as the assistant commissioner said, and as Diana Foxall just confirmed there, none of that is going to be known until they get the initial findings from the autopsy. And that will likely take a few days. So the manhunt aspect of this story is over, they, the RCMP say, uh, but there are still questions about what happened over the last few weeks. Uh, where, where were they? Were they wandering around in an area just missed 
perhaps because of how dense the brush is there. I've heard descriptions of it as it's hard to even walk in side by side with somebody into the brush. Uh, Jay McClatchy, the assistant commissioner, said there's no trails. There's no way like you are hacking your way through that. And yet they did manage to find these two bodies about a kilometer from the shoreline of the Nelson River. And they will uh, have more on that, I believe. In fact, the attention also now turns to here in BC. This is where the actual murder investigations are going on. Remember, that's how this all started. Three bodies that were found here in this province, starting with in the northern part near Liard Hot Springs, where it was China Deese and Lucas Fowler. And then a couple of days later, the body of Leonard Dick also found there. So BC RCMP are going to be speaking with the media at three o'clock today about the homicide investigations following now the Winnipeg and uh, Manitoba RCMP wrapping up their aspect of the manhunt. Now, we've spoken to BC RCMP over the last couple of weeks as well, checking in with them about how their investigation has been going. They are processing all of their crime scene evidence that they have been doing and intensely kind of uh, combing through the crime scenes over the last few weeks, they said. They had, of course, um, charged Cam McLeod and Brian Schmigelski with second-degree murder in the murder of Leonard Dick, but there had not yet been charges. They were still suspects in the case of the murders of China Deese and Lucas Fowler. So what happens now to those investigations? Will Do they proceed? Uh, you know, charge it? Like, what are they going to do with all of that? Obviously, those are questions for BCRCMP. And once again, they will be speaking with the media at 3 p.m. today. So just coming up in about two hours time or so. We'll have that for you live right here. So make sure you tune in for that as well. But this is a huge development. I think people had started to feel like, oh, they're never going to find these guys, Uh, even though there were still reported sightings of them well into Ontario. Ontario Provincial Police were investigating. Uh, There had been that kind of sense that is this ever going to be over? It's one of the reasons why RCMP had scaled down their resources more than a week ago. And they did do that. They were getting help from Canadian Armed Forces. They packed up and, you know, went back to their bases, said they were on standby in case they were needed again. Uh, But this morning, as of this morning, we're hearing that's not the case. They believe the manhunt aspect of this case is over. Two bodies found 8 o'clock our time this morning, and they believe those bodies to be that of Briar Schmigelski and Cam McLeod. Still lots of reaction to come from this, right? BCRCMP's reaction, the family's reaction to this. How are they feeling about this? Uh, The people who live in the towns where this manhunt was located, they must be relieved. So there's lots more still to come. Keep it tuned in here for this developing story. The top story right now, right across the country, is the end of the weeks-long manhunt for the two suspects wanted in the triple homicides here in B.C. Those two suspects, Barish Migelski and Cam McLeod, are believed to be dead. Manitoba RCMP saying that they believed found their bodies this morning. Uh, they said located about a kilometer away from the shoreline where some personal effects had been found on Friday. That was the critical clue that allowed the RCMP to kind of narrow down their search and uh, look around that area. And it led to this huge discovery today. But, you know, so many things have happened, right? Over the last, oh, three, four weeks that we have been following this story. It has been development after development. We wanted to break all of that down for you, walk you through how we got to this point. CKNW contributor Nikki Reitmeyer does that for us, taking a look back at the events leading up to the end of the search. 
Good evening and thank you for joining us. We begin with two disturbing cases playing out in northern B.C. One involves a young tourist couple found dead on a remote stretch of highway. The other, two teenagers gone missing, their vehicle lit on fire and a body found nearby. Police say complex investigations are underway, but it's possible the two cases are connected. They're appealing to the public for information and they're urging people in the region to be safe. On July 15th, two bodies are discovered in rural northern B.C. What happened to 24-year-old China Dees and 23-year-old Lucas Fowler? Both experienced travelers. Dees and Fowler were shot near their van. It's believed the van had broken down. Four days later, the RCMP announced another body has been found and two teenagers are missing. Now, a mystery unfolding in northern B.C. RCMP are looking for two missing teens linked to an abandoned vehicle in the same area where a body was found. The media and the public start to speculate. Is there a serial killer on the loose? The third victim found has now been identified as Leonard Dick. July 21st, the two missing teens are identified as 19-year-old Cam McLeod and 18-year-old Briar Schmigelski. Investigators have also been able to confirm that Cam McLeod and Briar Schmigelski have left British Columbia. The two missing teens are spotted in Cold Lake, Alberta, then Saskatchewan. We believe that they're likely continuing to travel. Given these latest developments, Cam and Briar are no longer considered missing. They're alive, but relief quickly turns to suspicion. The RCMP are now considering Cam McLeod and Briar Schmigelski as suspects in the Dees Lake suspicious death and the double homicide of Lucas Fowler and China Dees. The boys are named as official suspects in the three deaths. Eventually, they'll also be charged with second-degree murder in the death of Leonard Dick, the man whose body was found near a burned-out truck. The father of Briar Schmigelski spoke out to the media. Initially, it looked like they were victims as well, right? Initially. And, and it's, it's really tough for me to see in the paper today photos of them alive and well in Saskatchewan. So I know they're not lost in the woods. That's, 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 that's incredibly hard to deal with. A normal child doesn't travel across the country killing people. A child in some very serious pain does. Mounties are going to shoot first and ask questions later. Basically, he's going to be dead today or tomorrow. I know that. I would say... in peace, brother. I love you. I'm so sorry all this had to happen. I'm so sorry that I couldn't rescue you. Gillum, Manitoba, now the epicenter of a nationwide manhunt for two B.C. teenaged murder suspects on the run. July 24th, the boys continue to drive east. Their burned-out vehicle is found in Gillum, Manitoba. We are also reminding everyone that these suspects should not be approached. And if you do see them, to call 911. Gillum becomes ground zero in the manhunt. 
By the end of July, despite multiple sightings, Cam and Briar remain at large. This is a very large area that we're looking at, as I said before, it's very remote. I can't say it's terribly surprising because it's, it's just a very tough place to find somebody who doesn't want to be found. July 31st, the RCMP announced they will be scaling back the manhunt. To be clear, we are not ending this search. A number of tactical resources and specialized assets will remain in positioned in the Gillum area and will continue the efforts to locate the murder suspects. Tips from the public continued to flow in. A gas station attendant claims to have served them gas before she realized who they were. It happened at this gas station. He, he's the one who asked me to buy gas, $20. A sighting employee, Michelle Keeper, will never forget. Members of the Bear Clan Patrol say that they spotted two young men suspiciously wandering around a Manitoba landfill. So they saw two guys near the dump, and so they were careful to, uh, you know, get an idea of uh, a description of the, of the gentleman that they saw, uh, th their exact location and the direction of travel after that, and it seems to have helped uh, the search. Survival experts began to speculate on just how long the two teens could make it for in the wild. It's true that up to this point, I'm not surprised that they haven't been found, but I will be surprised if it keeps going on longer that they don't, uh, they don't give themselves away. I, I don't see this going into months. They're 19 and 18. They just don't have that much experience. So the long-term thing, unless they've jumped in somebody's car and escaped, I don't see the long-term game happening in the woods, not when you're on the run. Had they gotten in a car and driven far away? There was another sighting, this one deemed credible by the RCMP, but it happened in Ontario, more than 2,000 kilometers away from Gillum. They've scoured 11,000 square kilometers of territory. They've canvassed 500 houses, searched abandoned buildings, followed up on nearly 300 tips. And despite all of that, it would appear anyway that they are no closer to finding these two BC murder suspects. The suspects seemed to have completely disappeared. There's also another prospect here that we haven't mentioned yet. That is the possibility that these suspects may actually already be dead. We're getting some breaking news and where the RCMP have found some new clues in the ongoing manhunt for two murder suspects from BC. A damaged boat was found on the Nelson River in Manitoba. And on the first weekend of August, items belonging to the suspects were found along the shoreline. Were the RCMP finally closing in on the suspects? And would they find the teens alive or dead? Wednesday, August 7th. CKNW Global News. The manhunt is over. Manitoba RCMP say the teenage murder suspects wanted out of B.C. have been found dead. This morning, at approximately 10 a.m., RCMP officers located two male bodies in the dense brush within one kilometer from where the items were found. This is approximately eight kilometers from where the burnt vehicle was located. At this time... We believe these are the bodies of the two suspects wanted in connection with the homicides in British Columbia. An autopsy is being scheduled in Winnipeg to confirm their identities and to determine their cause of death. 
That's Nikki Reitmeyer, our CKNW contributor, giving us a timeline of events, how we got to this point today with the acknowledgement from the Manitoba RCMP that their aspect of this, the manhunt anyway, is over. They found two bodies this morning, 8 o'clock our time. They believe those bodies to be Briarish Migelski and Cam McLeod. And so we turn our attention to BC. This is where those three homicides happened. This is where the investigations are focusing into solving those homicides. What do BC RCMP have to say about the latest developments today? Well, they are going to be holding a press conference at three o'clock. They will be updating where they are at at this point and what their feeling is. Remember, charges had been laid of second degree murder uh, against Briarish Migelski and Cam McLeod in the death of Leonard Dick. There had been no charges laid yet in the deaths of China Deese and Lucas Fowler. Where do we go from here on that front? Uh, what do they have to say about all that? So that is coming up at three. Make sure you keep it tuned in right here for all of that uh, information on this developing story today. We'll have more as well. Well, it's pretty clear that the only thing anybody is talking about today is the announcement by the Manitoba RCMP that the manhunt is over. And of course, when we say manhunt, we refer to the search for the two suspects in the triple homicides in BC, Barsh Migelski and Cam McLeod. That had been a very intense search going on for the last couple of weeks that had been really focused on northern Manitoba. Like, yes, we heard that in the last couple of days that Ontario Provincial Police were investigating reports of sightings of the two suspects in some uh, small towns there. But always for the RCMP, the focus never strayed for them from Gillum. They had no reason to believe the suspects had really left. There was that, you know, everyone's once in a while they would say that maybe somebody had inadvertently helped them, but they never really did get any solid evidence that the two suspects were outside of that initial circle of interest area, the area around where the burned out vehicle that it was believed the two suspects were driving in was found about 40 kilometers south of Gillum. We now know that the bodies of those two suspects was found about eight kilometers away from that burned out vehicle. And that happened at 10 a.m. this morning, Manitoba time, eight o'clock in the morning, our time. That's when our CMP officers say they located the bodies of those two males believed to be the BC suspects. Now, official confirmation of that, along with cause of death, all of that still to come. That is pending uh, the autopsy, which will be done in the next couple of days. This all happened, the RCMP says, as a result of objects that they found on Friday on the shoreline of the Nelson River. And that changed everything when it came to this search. Now, we had a press conference from Manitoba RCMP Assistant Commissioner Jane McClatchy about uh, an hour and a half or so ago. And this is the announcement she made. Over the last two weeks, our officers have worked tirelessly to find the suspects wanted in connection to the homicides in British Columbia. While there were no confirmed sightings since July 22nd, we never gave up in our search efforts, following up on every lead, considering all options, and using every available resource. We knew that we needed just to find that one piece of evidence that could move this search forward. On Friday, August 2nd, that one critical piece of evidence was found. Items directly linked to the suspects were located on the shoreline of the Nelson River. Following this discovery, we were at last able to narrow down the search. We immediately sent in specialized RCMP teams to begin searching nearby high-probability areas. 
This morning, at approximately 10 a.m., RCMP officers located two male bodies in the dense brush within one kilometer from where the items were found. This is approximately eight kilometers from where the burnt vehicle was located. At this time, we believe these are the bodies of the two suspects wanted in connection with the homicides in British Columbia. An autopsy is being scheduled in Winnipeg to confirm their identities and to determine their cause of death. So obviously we have some more questions uh, what those autopsy results will show, uh, if they can shed some more light on what happened here, how long had they been dead, what happened to them, had they been moving around prior to that. Those are still questions that have yet to be answered. And of course there's the actual investigation here in BC, the murder investigations into the deaths of those three victims. Now the BC RCMP are going to be holding their press conference at 3 o'clock, so coming up in about an hour and 20 minutes or so, and and they will likely talk about next steps or where they go now uh, in light of their investigation. Remember, these suspects had been charged with second-degree murder in the death of Leonard Dick, and they were still suspects, but charges had not been laid in the deaths of China Deese and Lucas Fowler. And speaking of that, when it came to the families of those victims today, they were singled out by Assistant Commissioner McClatchy, wanting to thank them for their patience during this. To the families of everyone affected by the series of events over the last few weeks, I know it has been so very difficult, and I hope today's announcement can begin to bring some closure. I want to thank the communities and the leadership of Gillam, Fox Lake Cree Nation, Ilford Warlake First Nation, and York Landing. Your lives have been disrupted. Many of you lived with uncertainty and fear, but throughout you were resilient. You came together as communities, and you helped our officers get the job done. Now, of course, this was an unprecedented nationwide manhunt. We've never seen anything like this before. It spanned, you know, right across Western Canada and even into Ontario, as I was saying, right? There were those reports in Ontario, people sure that they had seen these two suspects. So RCMP detachments, police forces right across the country, Canadian Armed Forces, they were all involved in this at some point. And those were other groups that the Assistant Commissioner wanted to thank in this search. To the officers involved in the search... I commend you for your determination, your innovation, for never giving up, and for working night and day to bring this search to a conclusion. This was a search that could not have been successfully achieved without the help from our partners and Canadian Armed Forces, from RCMP employees who came in from across the country, and from multiple private partners. Above all, however, It was a search that could only be successful if we had strong public engagement and support. Thank you to all Canadians for remaining vigilant, for calling us with information, and most importantly, for being our partners. But of course, there are still questions here, right? Where exactly were these bodies found? Was it an area that had been searched before, or was it new to the RCMP? Uh, And as well, why did it take uh, more than two weeks? They've said how difficult the terrain was and made it like so incredibly dense in all of that. Uh, That was especially the case here. We know that for the RCMP and the Canadian Armed Forces who are participating in these searches, they said that this kind of brush is that you just don't see this very often. It was really tough going during the search. And that's why the Assistant Commissioner also singled out law enforcement, all the officers that have been involved in this search? It's very, very dense brush, is what I can tell you. Uh, very thick, very difficult to work your way through. There's no trails. It's, it's just very thick 
brush, very dense, and it's a huge area we were searching before. We didn't have any information to pinpoint us to a specific search area where we could do a much more detailed search. The items we did find on the shoreline gave us that opportunity to pinpoint that search and therefore do a much more detailed uh, search of the area. Right, and so they keep pointing out that, that what they found on Friday was critical evidence in terms of them being able to narrow the search down because they were able to say these items belong to the two suspects. We don't know what those items actually were. They haven't said that. They also haven't said, like, was that had they gone by that area before and those items weren't there? Did that also catch their attention? Did the abandoned kind of banged up boat that they found also have anything to do with this? So still a few questions about how they got to where they are now with the search being over. And then the assistant commissioner, also like a very intense time, right, for police in Manitoba. She also answered a question about how she felt now that the bodies of the two suspects have been found. Well, I mean, there's obviously a certain amount of relief um, that we were able to locate these people and and hopefully bring some closure, not only to the victims of the homicides, but to the people of Gillum, Fox Lake Cree Nation, York Landing. Ilford War Lake Nation. It's, it's, it's huge to be able to hopefully give some people uh, an opportunity to exhale and to hopefully eventually go back to normal and not being afraid of who's out in the woods anymore. Oh boy, is that ever critical, right? You, how many times did we talk to residents or you know mayors or whatever in and around in these small towns who said, you know, they're having to lock their doors at night, they were having to lock their windows, they were told by police to stay indoors if they could, and this was just not things that they are used to doing in these small towns. And so that was very much on edge. And that sense of relief there that was talked about is certainly being felt in Gillum, Manitoba. The mayor, Dwayne Foreman, spoke to the Winnipeg Free Press newspaper about the news that the search has come to an end. Just pure relief, really. Uh, my my whole body kind of got uh, a weird sensation when I was first given the news. It was uh, hard to explain, uh, like a chill over the body. I'm, I'm very relieved that, that this is over. It's been a real trying time for those communities trying to move forward, and I'm sure they are very relieved, as he said there, to have this over with. So now, again, still a few questions with the autopsy that will be to come in the days ahead. But also, BCRCMP, where are we at with the investigations, the murder investigations that started all of this? They will be addressing some of that coming up in a little over an hour's time with a press conference. We will have that live for you right here. So keep it tuned in for the very latest. That'll be on the Linda Steele Show as well.